As you're seated, if you would turn then in the Scriptures to Luke's Gospel, chapter 22. We'll read there verses 24 through 30, which serve as our text today. Luke chapter 22, from 24 to 30. Hear then the Word of God. And truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to inquire among themselves which of them it was that should do this thing. And there was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest. And he said unto, unto them, the, things of, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But ye shall not be so, but he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief as he that doth serve. For whether is greater, he that sitteth at meat, or he that serveth, is not he that sitteth at meat, but I am among you as he that serveth. Ye are they which have continued with me in my temptations, and I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed unto me, that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Verses 24 through 30 in particular are here by Luke following after this very sober and searching word of the betrayer present there with him. And yet you'll notice that Luke is setting up something for us. That even the most searching of words will not eradicate the reality of pride even among God's people. There is still grace needed that such would be put to death. And so you'll notice this passage has to do with greatness. And though one could divide this as far as themes are considered from verse 24 to 27, you'll notice that verses 28 through 30 provide a consolation and encouragement to those who are faithful to Him. So the passage is dealing with greatness. It's a theme, of course, that history has given much attention to. Yet, as the world treats it, it is always personally focused. And so even the likes of those the world would recognize as humble and great are set forth as these paragons of virtue for the praise of their name. But here Christ is actually saying not even that is the motive for true greatness. Notice the passage itself. Verse 24 records that strife has broken out among the disciples. What a context this is as far as the occurrence. Here the Passover as well as the Lord's Supper and now strife has broken out. And what happens, the strife is identified, verse 24, to be about a particular subject. 
which of them should be accounted the greatest? Now, as one has mentioned, this is a very clear testimony against the primacy of the Pope coming from Peter. Because the apostles, even in their strife, are acknowledging that Peter was not the unified and the identified one as the leader. And though that's the case, it's not the primary message. Because the message is one of reproof. Here they are contending, who's the greatest? Don't we love this question? We often don't want to be so bold as to present ourselves. But it's interesting that historically we love to entertain the thought, who's the best athlete? Who's the best musician? Who's the best politician? Who's the best warrior? Who's the best leader of empires? Who's the best cook? All of these things, however dignified they may seem, however little and trivial they may be, there's this quest to identify greatness. But what a sad thing it is, as here, when it breaks out among Christians. Notice verse 25, Christ begins His correction. And He does so by reminding them that such concern is mirroring the unconverted nations. The kings of the Gentiles, of the nations, those who have not the light of God's Word, these exercise lordship over them. This lordly power, this great uh, transcendence among men is what is exercised by them. And so they exalt themselves and they push down others. And then you'll notice, they exercise they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. Now this is an interesting way of Christ reproving pride. The idea is this. They're exalted and they count it a part of their exaltation that they then care for those beneath them. So even in their service, Christ is saying their service is still an aspect of their pride. And you can see this. Great monuments erected. Is it not astounding that this sometimes arise, arises in churches? Through the great charity of so-and-so, this was donated. And there's a plaque installed and so on. There's this notion of being acknowledged and recognized as great. Notice what Christ says. Verse 26, But ye shall not be so. He that is greatest among you let him be as the younger, he that is chief as he that doth serve. In this is, of course, the essence of the correction. You're judging according to a worldly and sinful perversion of greatness. This perversion that says, look how great I am through my wisdom, my works, even through my service. And I put myself, as it were, upon the stand in order to be acknowledged as great. In fact, in Genesis, we see this. The names of these mighty men that come from the three sons of Noah then have cities named after them. And the Scriptures ridicule this notion. They say men call cities after themselves, thinking by it to have a lasting memorial. Well, this is, of course, pervasive. And Christ says, not only is it pervasive, it is reprehensible. 
it is to be condemned. Scriptures tell us, let another praise you, not yourself. And yet, how often is it that we're fishing for the praise of men to ourselves and in backhanded ways trying to elicit the praise from men? This is all one with what's taking place here. The strife has erupted. Children, we don't live, so far as we understand, in any immediate threat in our region of any volcanic eruption. And there are those which lay dormant, and of course there's evidence of tremendous upheaval through the eruptions of such things. And yet we should look upon a volcano, even when it's dormant, to realize that though it's not active, it is still the channel through which that destructive force of the lava eruption would blow up. And the same is true with reference to unmortified sin and corruption. It may not erupt at all times, but if it is there within our heart, soon enough, even at the most unseemly of times, it may indeed be as here among the disciples, that strife would be among them. Christ's reproof comes, and what a testimony it is that He appeals to the perfection of it in verse 27. Whether is greater, he that sitteth at meat, in other words, the one who is attended upon, or the one who is serving, is not he that sitteth at meat, but I am among you as he that serveth. Christ shows, as he is the transcendent Son of God incarnate, where true greatness is. He's not doing this in order to be thought of as much. He's doing this as the whole of the Scriptures confirm, out of a sincere love to do good to those he's serving. This is his orientation and his posture. And as he reproves, notice the skill and concern and love of Christ, he then confirms them, verses 28 through 30. When it is, he encourages their faith and says, It's not as if you are unregenerate and unconverted. Look, here's something of true greatness. You've continued with me in my temptations. You've not left when men have rejected me. You remember that moment of great weight when many turned from him. And Christ turned to His disciples and say, says, will you also go away? And Peter stands and says, where shall we go? For thou hast the words of eternal life. And so they continued with Him. And He's helping them see that is where there is true greatness. To treasure Christ. To follow and serve Him. And then He goes further and says there is a season of glory to come. Verses 29 and 30. Namely, firstly, the false greatness of the world. And secondly, the true greatness of Christ's kingdom. When we grasp what Jesus is saying, we'll realize that there's no amount of stoic self-discipline and self-denial, however many lessons we may derive from them. There's no amount of self-help guru that is available through YouTube or conferences or best-selling books. There is nothing the world can offer us to make us truly great. We may become greater at mastering certain habits. We may become greater at managing certain difficulties. 
But true greatness is not measured by those things. True greatness is measured by a sincere casting of ourselves into the dust in order to see others flourish. Because this is what Christ did. He embraced the shame of the cross with love and sincerity in order to serve and bless His people. Well, firstly then, the false greatness of the world. Brethren, this is particularly important because our culture is coming face to face with this war. The culture has seen something and is increasingly seeing more clearly the ridiculous deception of mediocrity. Just sort of carry on and don't be so diligent and so on. So what's spun off from this? There's been all sorts of productivity uh, conferences, books, and other such things so that you can stand out. There are bestsellers who, even as you may be familiar, from good to great, things that have indeed embedded in them helpful insights as far as corporations and personal skillfulness. But absent from those things is anything that even comes close to laying hold of true greatness. And what happens is when we see and we see the mediocrity of our current generation saying just live as you want, carry on, don't worry about these things, and we see that's empty, it's actually hollow. Because I was made as an image bearer of great dignity. I was made as one who has the highest of callings to glorify and enjoy God. And the casual indifference of the culture is off. All of that that the world has been shoving down the throats of its children, particularly in our nation, that says don't worry about diligence, don't worry about discipline, don't worry about pursuing something greater than yourself. It's starting to become unraveled so that the hollowness of that is felt. But here's the problem. In its place is coming a different form of self-indulgence. And so you have, no surprise, the rise of Ironman competitions. You have the rise, no surprise, of all sorts of endurance feats. You have the rise, no surprise, of all of the things that mark out men as great and yet by worldly and self-focused standards. And it creeps in in other ways. How can you be a great mom? How can you have the best diet? How can you be sure that you're shopping for the best things? How can you be sure that you're providing your children the best ways? And so social media is not the cause, but it surely enhances this as it presents to the world the very idol that Christ is condemning. It's putting up a false image of greatness where now greatness goes from the couch potato with all of their flab and so on to the fit and muscular one. It goes from the careless one who indulge in all sorts of bad diets to the one who has every prepped meal in their freezer and in their refrigerator. And this now is set up as greatness. Self-denial in outward ways. How long? Think of this. How long can I study? And so there are YouTube videos that are on quick pace of look how I've studied for 10 hours without interruption. How much weight can I lift? 
How many things can I do? How many businesses can I run? How much hustle can I pursue? Brethren, here's the point. Whereas it certainly is in contrast to the flab of the previous few generations, it is just replacing one false thing with another. The false greatness of the world is here utterly and absolutely condemned by Christ. And so, notice the text. There is the appearance of this greatness in verse 25. This is what men lust after. And so, Christ says, the Gentiles, the kings of the Gentiles, exercise lordship over them. Notice this picture. The pinnacle of honor is to be above others. Look at me. Look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. Look how I stand out. This is what was desired. Now surely there were, as you can read in classic texts, voices that oppose this, even through pagan philosophy. And yet they even fall short because whereas they go from the extreme of outward glory, they go to the other extreme of inward glory of look how much I can endure. Look how I don't need the money. Look how I don't need that fame. Look how I don't need these things. Both of those are fundamentally related to this point. It's look how much better I am than others. It's fundamentally the message of advertising today. How can you become greater than others. This thing will give you the edge on your competition. This thing will shed a little bit more belly fat off of your body. This thing will make you a little bit smarter. This thing will give you a little bit more time. This thing will make your family a little bit better. And all of that's catering after this sinful self-satisfaction and indulgence of making ourselves greater than others. Now, of course, it's fundamentally flawed Because try as we might, we realize in the depths of our soul, we aren't going to stand out as the greatest. And yet it's catering to the self-indulgent passion within us. And Christ says that's the way, catch this phrase, of the kings of the Gentiles. Now of course we realize that the division between Gentile and Jew is no longer at work so far as the kingdom of God is concerned. The Gentiles have been grafted in through Christ. Christ is the entry gate. And so if a Jew is converted or a Gentile is converted, they are converted by God's grace which brings them to the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. But when Christ is speaking this, this is full of weight. Because what He's saying is the Gentiles who have no light of special revelation of God pursue this. What's He saying? It is utterly pagan. That's a word that ought to come back to our culture. Because if you have eyes to see it, our culture is inherently pagan. What's the measure of it? That almost everywhere you look, there is a self-focus. That focus is inherently pagan. It may be free of open idolatry. It may be free of statues uh, statues to which incense is offered. But paganism is fundamentally self-focused. Think, for instance, of the so-called gods of the nations. What are they but sort of mankind on steroids? They're bigger, they're stronger, they're more beautiful, they're more powerful, all of these things, and yet they're all inherently flawed. 
the sins of the so-called pagan gods are astonishing. How wicked, incest, murder, all sorts of things done, and yet honored. Why is that? Why does that appeal to men? Because what it does is it says, look how great I can be. It doesn't deal with sin. It appeals to the flesh. And brethren, though we be free from such open worship as of Zeus and Poseidon or Jupiter or others, yet be sure of this. Paganism is the air our culture breathes. How so? Well, it's not with the temples as we think of them in ancient Greece or Rome or other such cities and nations. It is within the temple of our mind where we have shifted from the openly and overt religious to the less clearly so and yet same focus upon the ideal self. Really, this all goes back to the garden. Think of what Eve saw and what Adam permitted and then participated in. She saw that it was good, it was beautiful, and able to make her wise. It was her desire. And so she pursued it because she wanted it. What is the currency of what justifies our actions? I want it. I want that, I'll get it. I want that, I'll take it. That's the message of our culture. And notice, even its seeming service as they stand exalted above men goes about parading their service to men. Brethren, you need merely spend 10 minutes on YouTube to see how this happens. And you get a blurb and it says, look what happens when I give $500 to a homeless man. Or you get a blurb about donating a million dollars to people in need. Look at me, fill the carts of this shop so that I can hand it out to charities. What's happening there? Well, while they walk around in all of their casual clothes, they're still doing what those used to do in all of the robes of their regalia. They're trumpeting their own works, saying, look at me and what good I'm doing. Now, of course, we see this in politics as well, and the conservatives love to point out the virtue signaling of the left. And yet, let's be clear, the same thing happens on the right. Men and women of every sort, well-educated, absolutely stupid, rich, absolutely poor, all of them are seeking their own honor. And Christ says, this, far from being great, is fundamentally reprehensible. And we ought to see this because what is the fruit of such fixation upon ourselves? Fundamentally, it's strife. Notice this is what breaks up, right? This is what breaks out. There was strife among them. Which of them should be accounted the greatest? We need only turn to James to see this very thing explained. James chapter 3, when he says so clearly to us in verses 14 through 16. If ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, notice this for a moment. It's not merely the breaking out of it in words and outward contention. It's the unsatisfied, dissatisfied 
posture of our hearts. If you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not against the, uh, lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. Verse 1 of the next chapter. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lust that war in your members? So see the connection? The inward dissatisfaction will break out on occasion to the display of that very same thing. That's what's happened among the disciples. They had taken the bait of the world's message of true greatness, being exalted above men, being paraded by men as great, being honored by men as great, being thought of men as great. And in doing so, it finally came to a head and erupted in the fruit of strife and contention. You know, this can be seen in the trivial thoughts of someone who's passionate about a particular athletic team. And they come into contact with somebody else who's on the opposite side of that debate. And they get toe-to-toe. I mean, you actually hear reports of people getting shot over such debates. What's going on? What's taking place? It's this erupting. It's this focus upon self. Well, my team is this, and your team is that, and we can't so much as talk without it coming to fisticuffs over such a thing. Now, surely the majority of such discussions and debates are often harmless, but you can see something of the undercurrent that's taking place. Brethren, here is the astounding feature of the text. Those who are debating are not kings of lesser or greater nations. Those who are debating are not Gentiles, nor are they common Jews in one sense, though certainly Jews themselves. They are hand-chosen apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ who had walked with Christ for the period of three years and never once seen anything in their king which would condone such a thought. Some of you have walked with Christ for more years than the apostles did at this time. And yet it's instructive to us to see that if it were possible for such a false view to grip the hearts and on this occasion erupt among the disciples, it is possible for the same to have laid hold in our hearts. And if it does not get mortified by the Spirit's gracious work through the cross of Christ, Mark it well. Soon enough, your own strife and contention will show itself. We can summarize by saying the false greatness of the world is false because it sets dust as the focus. I mean, we get this, don't we? It doesn't matter how much of a regimen you have for working out, how well your diet is. If you get eight to ten hours of sleep each night because you hear that's good, you stay hydrated. You eat the best foods. You're always balanced in your work and life and so on. All of these things, you take the best supplements. You're doing all of these things. You have time off. You work hard and you go about these things and so on. It doesn't matter. That person's going to come to an end still. This is no way to argue against wisdom and prudence and diligent care and honoring of the body to the glory of God. It is to show that if we make that an end, 
even subtly in our mind, while with our words we say the right thing. We're, we're, we're bowing down to dust and we're worshiping, as it were, ourselves over God. False greatness indeed. Well, secondly, notice true greatness. This false greatness is of the world. That is, its origin is in sin and rebellion against God and it is in setting up oneself as the main thing. The true greatness of Christ's kingdom is far superior to the best of the world's kingdom. What is this true greatness of Christ's kingdom? Well, you see the essence of it stated in verse 26. He says, He that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. He that is chief as he that doth serve. Now, so soon as we hear that, we might think, okay, well then that's the way to make myself stand out. And so, okay, I'm going to be done with all of the foolishness of the unenlightened world, and I'm going to make myself great by doing these things and still focus upon our hearts. And yet the language, and certainly the context, will not permit such things. Because what he's getting at is saying, it's not just about your doing. It is that your own heart has to embrace these things. If you're older, you're to be as the younger. If you are chief, you're to be as the one who serves. And isn't it amazing how these things parade themselves even in religion? I mean, it's laughable were it not blasphemous. The Pope is celebrated as a servant for on one day a year washing the feet of impoverished people. And we say, you've got to be kidding me. You think this marks out some sort of sincere lowliness? Brethren, the posture that Christ is getting at is not a performance. It's the possession of grace. It's the transformation of a life that says, this is my identity. It's not, let's get this on social media, take a picture, circulate it. It's not, look at this and let's parade it among others and let me tell what I've done and look at all these things and all of that. It's rather, this is my identity. I am by God's grace transformed that I have a new focus and it has nothing to do with myself. Do you remember the language of Philippians 2? That we're to esteem or reckon one another as greater than ourselves. Paul doesn't say pretend like one another is greater than yourself. He doesn't say that you're to perform as if that's the case. He's saying the whole of your thought The whole of your soul, your mind, is to look upon them with sincerity and say, that man, that woman is above me and I am going to serve them. The essence is not a performance. It is a reality. Notice its action is characterized by serving. He that doth serve. This is, of course, difficult for us. We see a piece of trash on the floor, and what do we think? Someone will pick it up. We see something out of sorts, and we say, someone will take care of it. We sit at the lunch tables, and we say, someone will clean them up. We see issues, and we say, someone will handle that. Christ is saying it's to be so pervasive that when you see it, you serve. Now, of course, this doesn't mean it takes us away from our callings because we have a calling that God has given to each of us. 
And so, for instance, the apostles saw a need in the church. There was the need to oversee the administration of food to the widows, both of the Jews and of the Greeks and so on. But they don't say, well, I'm going to serve there and forsake and turn from my calling that God's given me. Instead, here is a need and we're going to exercise our authority to provide for the fulfillment of the need. And so they ordain deacons. And so it's not husbands are to become wives and wives are to become husbands, but husbands are to lead their homes to assist and strengthen their wives to fulfill the work that they're given. Wives are to fulfill their role and assist and strengthen their husbands to perform the work that's given. And so they're giving themselves within their callings to serve, to exercise whatever influence, whatever authority, whatever wisdom, whatever skill they have in order to see that service is truly performed. It is not just, as it were, this thought, okay, I need to serve, it leads to activity of real service. And notice then, from the essence, this sincere posturing of ourselves unto the activity of service, all of which requires grace, Christ then shows the perfection of it. In verse 27, which is greater, the one who sits at meat at the meal or he that serveth children, you've perhaps gone to a restaurant before where there are you know, servers that come. And they, you're seated at a table and the waiter or waitress comes up and says, what can I get for you to drink? And they're waiting upon you. And Christ is using this, albeit not in a restaurant setting, but in a home, an uh, ancient household where there would be servants in that household who would wait upon all of them. And of course, it's understood, those who were greater were those who were being waited upon. But notice what Christ says. He says, I am among you as he that serveth. Now, no one could mistake this. Because to this point, each of the disciples have acknowledged Jesus is Lord. That's a divine title. It is a superior title. It is the highest title. And Christ says, look for a moment, you call me Lord, and I am serving you. What's he getting at? He's not saying, you need to pat me up. I'm actually greater than you are, and so applaud me. He's saying, no, no, this is the nature of true greatness. Where there is greatness, it is shown in its sincere service. And when it is the exceptional and the greatest greatness, it will show itself in the exceptional and greatest service. Of course, there is no greater service than what Christ has done. This, of course, is Paul's point in Philippians 2. He, being equal with God, thought it not robbery to be counted equal with God, yet made of Himself no reputation, and took upon Himself the form of a servant. To what end? That He might serve us even to the point of death and that on the cross that He should be cursed for us, Paul says. This is the greatest service ever displayed in all the world. What does that mean? It means Christ is the greatest ever in all the world. The world doesn't see it right now. You know, though there are idolatrous statues that are erected to the remembrance of Christ in foolishness, 
the world at best gives a superstitious adoration to such things, or an appreciation more often the case to the artist or sculptor who provided such unwarranted and unlawful images of the Son of God incarnate. All of that noted, the world one day will perceive the glory of this Great One. And what they will acknowledge is He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. What is embedded in, embedded in that is the acknowledgement that He is the truly Great One. Right now there's this thought that He's marginal. He's you know, perhaps a philosopher. Perhaps even someone who was a miracle worker or whatever else. But really not all that important as far as the world is concerned. Blasphemous things are spoken. His name is taken in vain every day of the world. And every day, often in our own hearing, we hear the titles abused and perversely used. And yet there's a day coming when the world will give an account for its treating with shame the glorious Son of God. He is the perfect Indeed, He is greatness in its perfection because He is the Son of God. And yet, as the Son of God, who is the greatest, He didn't sit back on some royal throne and say, you owe it to Me. That would be legitimate and true. But He discloses that greatness in the wonder and depth of His perfection of service. I am among you as He that serveth. Christ gave His life as a ransom elsewhere stated. Notice again Philippians 2 to emphasize this point when it is that Paul brings this out in its fullness. And he says that He, the One who is God, verse 8, humbled Himself and became, notice this language, obedient unto death even the death of the cross. There is no greatness like unto Christ. And there is no great service like unto His. But you'll notice that from this perfection, Christ acknowledges there is something of His kingdom in even His errant disciples. For He says, Verse 28, ye are they which have continued with me in my temptations. And he's correcting their thought. He's recalibrating their understanding. Here's what I commend. You've continued serving me while I've been brought low. Here's what I acknowledge. While I am suffering and being rejected of men, you maintain your commitment to me. And he knows full well that in a matter of hours, everyone will be scattered. But what a glorious sight of the greatness of Christ. He serves to the encouragement of His people, seeing even the meager measure of grace, knowing full well the abominable sins that are about to be committed, and yet He glories in that grace that is manifest in their continuing with Christ. Brethren, we ought to be brought low. Christ would have us be brought low as this passage shows us. And yet Christ, even in bringing us low, still serves us to commend His grace at work in us. And then notice 
there is a coming glory that shall be exalted when it is, as He says, I appoint unto you a kingdom as My Father hath appointed unto Me, and so on. There will be fellowship with Him in His kingdom. The particular honor given to the apostles to stand, as it were, as judges over the twelve tribes of Israel. In other words, the current lowliness of greatness is but temporary. And yet, it will never have that self-focus honor that the world craves. Because you have, of course, a fuller picture given throughout the Scriptures. What happens when Christ gives honors to His disciples? They receive crowns. They're acknowledged as royal ones from the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet they cast their crowns before Him. They, they acknowledge these things as Paul says, for by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Lest any should, it's not of works, lest any should boast. There's no boasting in heaven apart from the united boast of Christ Jesus. And yet, all of those who will be boasting in Christ will be apparelled with such royal splendor, such glorious display of the kingdom of heaven and of God, that the damned who raised idols to themselves, who loved to posture themselves as great and think of themselves with satisfaction, will be wailing and gnashing their teeth at the utter reversal of what they gloried in. Because as they gloried in themselves instead of God, they will be gnashing their teeth in the depths of agony. While those who made themselves as dust to serve others by God's grace because of Jesus Christ shall be exalted in Christ in heaven forever. Brethren, here is something to marvel at. Our world does so little of marveling. It doesn't know what to marvel at anymore. It's more in tune with a screen than it is with the display of God's glory in creation. And so hours are wasted with children upon handheld devices and televisions instead of getting them out to nature where there's the display of that which is truly glorious. And yet here's something that transcends even the natural glory. It's the Son of God who has come not to sit Himself down and to say, now serve Me, but the glorious Son of God who has come to serve in the fullness of love and sincerity with delight in His people. Think of what was said earlier. With delight, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you. There's sincerity in that. It's not posturing. It's not virtue signaling. It's not performing. It is the real loving service of the greatest one there is unto those not who are at enmity, but as Paul says, who are enmity. They are sinfulness in its full. And yet He lovingly serves them to save them. This is something to consider. This is something to take up your minds. Children, you should pay attention to this. Whatever the fantastic stuff of comics might be, you have a real Savior who has done far superior 
to the imaginations of men. Adults, here's something for you to consider. Whatever the record books, whatever the tactics of great generals, whatever the accomplishments of philosophers and so on, here is one who is truly great. And yet, when we come to read history or fiction, we often give ourselves to things that at best are secondary instead of giving ourselves to the meditation upon true greatness. Why is that? I can't speak for your own soul, but I can speak for mine, which probably resembles yours. It's because our own souls are not committed to true greatness. Our own souls are committed to the fantasy of self-exaltation. We love to consider the works of men, whether real and historical or fabulous and imaginary, instead of considering the true greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's no wonder then that our own lives more resemble the world's idea of greatness than they do true greatness. It's because we have marveled at the false image instead of marveling at the true reality. Brethren, this is not a call to put off these stories, historical, fictional, whatever else. It is, however, a call to plunge ourselves into the wonder of the One who is truly great. Because only in this will we perceive greatness and by His grace be made great in the sincere, beautiful, and selfless way of lovingly serving others. Neglect not to give yourself to true greatness, which greatness is found exclusively in Jesus Christ. As we close, here is something for us to examine. Though I may be free from open idolatry, yet is there any display that I still have the essence of it? How can I be a better person? How can I be a better man, a better woman, a better uh, wife, a better husband? All of which can have a semblance of uh, uh, reliance or uh, uh, appearance of lining up with the Scripture's teaching. But is there the subtle disclosure to ourselves that really what we're seeking is a name for ourselves? I want to be a great father. Why? My dad was not a great father, but I want to be someone my children look up to. I want to be a great wife, a great mother. Why? Well, because I want to be someone my husband looks to or my children look up to. I want to be a great student. Why? And if you press the question why hard enough, the question has to come to what is the goal of it? Is it you want to be a faithful husband and father in order to serve your wife and children? Or is it so that you can receive the proverbial pat on the back that says, way to go? Is it you want to have good diets and healthy practices so that at the end of the day you aren't the couch potatoes of the previous generations, but you're rather, you've got it together, you're strong, you're going to live well, you're going to carry on well, and at the end of the day you can say, look what I've done and not others. Or is it that your disciplined diet and your disciplined exercise and your disciplined rest is so that your body 
can serve Christ. Because if it's not that, it is abject idolatry. You are idolizing yourself, whatever the good things may be, if they are not in service to Christ and His people, and the world even, in service to the glory of God. We ought to be thoughtful about our intake of food and drink. We ought to be thoughtful about our bodies. Indeed, God has given us the body, and our bodies are to serve Him. We ought to be thoughtful about what we're putting before our attention in books and uh, monitors and other such things. We ought to be thoughtful about how we spend our time and all of these things. All of that's true. We ought to be diligent as students, diligent as workers. We ought to be faithful as husbands, faithful as wives. But the fundamental question still remains, why? Is it to stand out? Or is it with sincerity out of love to God through Christ to serve others for Christ's glory? If that's not the cause, then however superior your body, your family, your habits, your actions, your entertainment, your recreations, all of them are still focused on the fundamentally flawed ideal of self. Christ is getting us to see as He perceives he doesn't look at this to say this is a calculated move so that they know I'm good. This is a calculated move so that they know I'm great. This is His greatness in serving sincerely His people to save them. And so examine yourself. And as you do, and discover sins, certainly confess them. But brethren, examine Christ also. Because as you discover your own infirmities and even your sins, Christ is one who will discover unto you His grace. And He'll say, yep, there's sin here as He's doing to His people. But it's Christ who says, don't overlook the evidence of grace. It's Christ who points out, look, you followed Me. What He's doing in the reproof is he saying, this needs still to be put to death, and yet what is made alive needs to continue being strengthened. And how is it that that comes to pass? Well, it comes to pass by the greatest among us, which is Jesus Christ. It's still Christ who serves us. It's not just that He served us on the cross. He still serves us right now in heaven He's interceding for us. Right now at this moment, He's ministering His Word to us. Right now, He's caring for us. For what purpose? That we would know true greatness and loving and real conformity to His greatness of true, sincere, gracious, godly service, which in the end will be acknowledged not merely by men, but by God Himself. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Brethren, the Lord does not call you away from seeking greatness. He calls you from the false idol of the world's perversion to the true glory of real greatness by His grace through Jesus Christ, which will be honored for all eternity. And fundamentally calls you to it in denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Christ.
Christ. Would you stand with me for prayer?